So today I have a special message for you. It's really a Bible study that we are going to have. And uh, looking at the title of the message, it really scares you or it scares me really when it says that Jesus has some things, it says a few things against you. And so that's what we'll be talking about today. And if you have your Bibles, uh, pull up your Bibles. Let's have a, a Bible study and enjoy and have worship uh, in the Word of God today. Uh, as, as you heard from the um, scripture reading, our reading is from Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14. And so, as you heard, we, we are reading from the book of Revelation. And I just want to begin to say that the book of Revelation is actually an amazing book. Sometimes we fear this book because it talks about beasts and all these things that are hard to understand. But really, it's a, there's a blessing in this book. Uh, it says, blessed is he that reads and they that hear the words of this prophecy, but also those who keep the things that are written in this book. And so it's, it's guaranteed that after today, we are going to be blessed. What do you say? Amen. Amen. We are going to be blessed because we're just doing what the Bible told us to do. Read the book of Revelation. And most importantly, the reason why I chose this is because this is not a revelation of beasts and uh, crazy creatures like Eldenic pointed out. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it makes me say that, you know, if you haven't read the book of Revelation, it means that perhaps you have not known Jesus as he wishes to be known. Does that make sense? If it makes sense, say Amen. It means if you haven't studied the book, there's something missing that you need to know. And let me tell you, today we're going to discover some things that are just, wow. Some things that we never thought Jesus would say or even do are found in the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has a few things against you and me. But you all know with Jesus, when he says few, it could also mean many. When he says soon, it could mean a long time. So it, it might be a, a few more things that Jesus has against you, but I hope that we can be willing to listen to what he's telling us uh, through the book of Revelation. So, of course, yes, there's no condemnation. We all know that, right? Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you walk after the Spirit and not after the flesh. And that's the condition given. If, there's an if, there's a condition. If you are, if you are walking in the Spirit, there's no condemnation. But what about if you're walking in the flesh? Is there condemnation? Yes, there is. Jesus Christ said, this is condemnation, that light, uh, that light came and men have chosen darkness rather than what? Light. But the reason why Jesus is doing all this is not to condemn us or anything. He just wants to save us. For Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did not come to condemn, but to save. And so... We'll be going through the seven churches, but we won't really study them as much. We're just looking at the condemnation part, right? <laughs> We're just looking at the parts that talk about us and see how we can reflect and, uh, you know, rearrange, rearrange our lives, rather, to meet what Jesus Christ says. So these are messages to the seven churches, literal churches that existed in Asia, but the prophecy also has a dual application. And I'm not making this up. If you read from verse 19 in your Bibles, I'll be moving at a faster pace because we have a lot to cover, but all the verses are there. You can write them down or 
uh, you can memorize them. But Revelation 1.19 says, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. And so that means there are things that pertain to the present day application, but there were things also that were referring to the future. If that makes sense, say amen. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. And so, yes, there's literal seven churches uh, located in present day Turkey today, but uh, there's also a, a very prophetic application, and also there's, there's also a very spiritual application. So the seven churches, in a sense, represented the period of the church from the time that Jesus Christ was resurrected, A.D. 31, until the time he will return. Jesus outlines the history of his church, what his church is going to go through, but he also outlines what each individual person goes through when they come to Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll be exploring today, the present-day application. How does this apply to me here in 2021? with all the COVID-19 that's going on. How does it make sense? Of course, we won't talk about uh, COVID-19, but how does it apply to me today? So there's a compliment and a complaint, but that's the good thing about Jesus. He first gives you a compliment. What do you say? So Jesus notices the things you do, and probably he doesn't agree 100% with some things that you do, but he always starts with a compliment. He says, I know you're doing this right. But then he also says, but then there's something that's not right. Maybe we can work together to fix that. And this is how I know that Jesus is not about, you know, just lambasting us or just calling us names. Because there's a church actually that receives no complaint at all. And so that shows that Jesus is not looking for complaints against you or some things against you. He died for us, right? He just wants to save us. And that's the whole point of these uh, seven churches. That's the whole point of this uh, sermon or presentation today. And so we want to start with the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, uh, which spans a period from AD 31 to AD 100. And uh, this is a church that was planted by Paul himself. And we know this church through the uh, letter to the Ephesians. This is the literal church that we are talking about. And here's what Jesus has to say unto this church. First, he comforts them. He says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my right hand, and I walk in the midst of the seven, uh, uh, seven golden candlesticks. And we don't, have, we don't need anybody to interpret to us what this means because the Bible interprets the Bible. What do you say? And so you don't need to be super uh, uh, complex or educated or sophisticated to understand the Bible. It's... It's like my friend uh, says, it's overwhelmingly simple to understand the Bible. And so when you read uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 20, it says uh, that the mystery of the seven stars, the f- seven stars simply means uh, the, the s- seven angels of the seven churches, and the candlesticks means churches. Are we still together, church? So the, the seven candlesticks means the seven churches. And so this tells us something about Jesus' character, something about what he does and how he works. He's in the middle of the seven churches. He's the one in charge. What do you say? He's the one who controls how the church works. He's the one who runs the church. And so he comes with this comfort to the church of Ephesus and tells them, I'm the one in charge. But also, I'm intimately connected with you as a church. You cannot separate Jesus from the church. No wonder when Paul is persecuting the church, Uh, So, sorry, so persecuting the church. What does Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. 
And so the church is not run by some pope or priest or even president who runs the church. Jesus Christ is in charge. But it, it also shows that he cares. He cares about every minute detail that's going on. He cares, he cares about Westminster SDA is going through right now. He knows and he cares. He saw how COVID-19 came, he cares. He had plans for it as well. And so I love this quote from Acts of the Apostles, page 13, that enfeebled and defective as it may be, the church is the one object upon which God bestows in a special sense his supreme regard. It's the theater of his grace. This church is a theater of his grace. It's where God does his amazing things. And so it reveals to us that God is love. But let's look at the compliment. Jesus Christ, and if you can follow me in your Bibles, just to make sure that the slides are right and that I'm not quoting from another Bible that you're not familiar with. Revelation chapter 2 verse 2 says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. Before we continue, I think I got too excited. <laughs> Let's pray and ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, uh, please forgive me for wanting to take this too fast than you want it to go. And Lord, may you give me a Holy Spirit to speak what you have communicated to me, the things you've impressed upon me. And Lord, please, I pray that you remind me to say the right things and, uh, and not to make people weary of the truth, but to present the truth in its simplicity, and that at the end of this message, that we'll be able to say, here am I, O Lord, send me. So Lord, I pray, that, uh, I pray for those who are hearing, and I pray that you be with my mouth, put your words in my mouth. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. So Jesus praises the church. Ephesus means desirable. This is a desirable church that you want to look to. They had works, labor, patience, all these good things. And when you think about it, there's actually a verse in the Bible, I believe it's Colossians 1.23. It says, the gospel was preached to all the world during the time of the apostolic church. Can you believe that? Only 12 disciples plus some other people, they were able to preach the entire gospel to the entire globe. And so this was an amazing church. They did greater miracles than Jesus Christ did because Jesus said, uh, if you follow me, if you, if you are my disciples, you are going to do greater things than I have done. So this is the amazing church. And we can compare that to our church today. We've done so many great things. Not everything is all bad, right? There's things we can look back and say, ah, that was pretty good, right? And Jesus notices that as well, that we've done some amazing things. And he continues to say how they had patience, you know, I think of, um, is it Peter and, and, uh, Peter and John, how they went preaching about Jesus, and they were actually beaten for preaching, but they still went back to preach. It shows the patience that this church had, the church, of the, the, uh, the early church or the apostolic church. But Jesus has a complaint against this church. And in a very present day application, perhaps maybe just maybe Jesus has a complaint against you and me today. Uh, it says that, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, you have left your first love. Have we left our first love? What does it mean to leave your first love? Well, think with me the, the story between uh, Jesus and Peter. Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you love me? 
And what does Peter respond? What does he say? He says, you know that I love you. But, you know, a deeper study reveals that what Peter is really saying is, uh, you know I like you. You know, I love you as a friend. You know, I like you as a friend. That's what Peter is saying. And that's why Jesus keeps asking, uh, do you really, do you really love me? And Peter says, you know, I like you. We're friends. I know you, you know. And he asks him, do you love me more than these? Now that could mean, do you love me more than the other disciples, right? But it also means, do you love me more than these things? Do you love me more than your boat? Do you love me more than your fishing business? Are you, are you willing to leave that? And that's the question that Jesus always asks, is asking today. Do you love me more than your job? Do you love me more than your car? Do you love me more than your phone or your tablet? In, in, in short, or in, in summary, do you love the giver more than the gifts that he gives? And as, as we plunge through the seven churches, let us wear the spirit of self-examination and, you know, just that introspection that we need to do. Because Jesus, I believe, not me actually, is speaking to us today through his word. And that's why I'll be reading most of the times just to point out what Jesus Christ is saying. So do you love me more than these? And it shows us that really God will accept nothing, nothing less than the whole heart. And that's why he keeps asking, do you really love me? Because Jesus will never accept a half, well, will never accept anything less than complete. He wants to have your whole heart, everything. And that's why it says, you will seek me and you will find me if you seek me how? With all your heart. And today the Lord is impressing upon us to seek the Lord with all our heart. Seek the Lord with all your heart. And there's a question here we have to ask ourselves as we contemplate here. Have you left your first love? You know, think with me. Think with me. If you were to draw a graph of your Christian experience, how would it look like? Would it be a linear graph that keeps going up? Now, of course, we all know the Christian experience, there's many ups and downs, right? Right? But it seems like Jesus is saying, yes, I know the Christian experience is ups and downs, but the net growth, the net sum of whatever is going on, the net of the ups and downs should always be up. Because if you can look at some time in the past, in your Christian experience, where you are on, more, on fire for the Lord more than you are now, it means that something is wrong. It means that you have to look back like Jesus says, you have to repent. Because Jesus does not allow us to go backward or to grow backward. He wants us to keep moving on. Yes, there will be challenges, but we have to keep growing. We have to keep going. And so in a special sense, it's our work to recognize our special sins. I love what they say here, special, special uh, failings, special sins which cause darkness and spiritual feebleness and quenches our first love. It's sin that quenches first love. Jesus says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many is going to what? It's going to wax cold. 
And so what special sin is pre- uh, preventing your love, is preventing you from ministering, and is preventing you from being on fire for Jesus like you used to be? What is it? In Hebrews 12, we are told to, you know, seeing that we are compassed about by a cloud of witnesses, we have to, you know, remove every weight of sin that so easily beset us. The sins that we do often, repeatedly, that uh, we do once in a while that we are never willing to let go. We have to make a decision and say, I cannot continue here. And if we don't do that, uh, Jesus is saying we are going to be lost. We are going to be lost. And, you know, there's a commentary here, and we're not going to go into the details because we have a lot to cover, but what, happens to the, what happened to the early church can also happen to us. Do you agree? Because everything that was written was written for us so that as we learn, we can reflect and, you know, just get closer to Jesus. And so here it says that they forgot the wonderful manner in which they were saved. Have we forgotten how we were saved? Some of us, it was a miracle. God had to do some amazing work to save us. But have we forgotten? And then it says that they were weary of oft-repeated truths. And this got to me. Are we, are we tired of the truth? Hearing the same message every Sabbath? You know, the same revelation stuff? The same beast stuff? Are we tired of that? It's possible because they became tired. And here's what they did. They started to compose things. You know, they desired for something new and novel. They attempted to introduce new doctrines. Something that would be comfortable. Something that would be accepted in 2021 environment. Are we doing that today in your life? Are you doing that? Because if you are, then you are not growing forward. You're growing backward. There was too much self-confidence and spiritual blindness. Do we have that today in our church? Do you have that in your own spiritual life? It's a moment of uh, truth, a moment of uh, reflection. But Jesus counsels and says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the first works. If you don't do that, I will just dissociate myself from you. And Jesus can do that. Remember the parable of the tree that if it doesn't bear, what happens to the tree? If it doesn't bear fruit, they just cut it. And Jesus is going to do that. And this is the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. So there's a call today to repent of our sins. If we we can look back at a time when we were so zealous for Jesus than we are now, we need to repent and do the first works. Do the first things we're doing. Do the AY we're doing. Do the amazing things we're doing. Reach the community. Do the singing we're doing. Do the first works. If that makes sense, say amen. Praise God. And, and, and Jesus is not about complaints. He even gives another co- compliment, free of charge. He says, but this thou hast, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. What? This thing is so bad, Jesus hates it. And he records it, and he sends it to us so that we can read it. What is the deeds of the, of the Nicolaitans? Could it be that we do the deeds of the Nicolaitans? Is that possible? It's very much possible. I mean, they did it, and they were the, the ones closest to Jesus. They, they probably saw Jesus, but they still did these deeds. Jesus says, I hate these things. And this is something I learned about love, that you cannot truly love if you don't hate. For you to love, you have to hate. Remember that verse that says, 
Love not the world, neither the things of the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Jesus is not saying, God is not saying, uh, don't love the world. Or let me put it this way. What he's saying is, hate the world. Okay, maybe let's use another verse to, to make that point clear. Friendship with the world is what? Enmity with God. So if you love the world, you hate God. Okay, maybe let's use another verse. Genesis 3.15. I will put what? Enmity between the devil and the church, really, us, right? Between the woman and the devil. There has to be enmity. And if there's no enmity for sin, for, for gross things that happen on this earth, if we don't feel... If, if, if we don't feel disgusted by evil, by sin, we can't really love God and his righteousness. And so we read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus was exalted above his fellows because what? He loved righteousness and did what? Hated wickedness or iniquity. Do you hate sin? If you hate sin, say amen. I'm trying to. It's hard. But for us to truly love, hatred will be involved. Obviously, this is holy hatred, right? Holy hatred. Not the hate. hate. The deeds of the Nicolaitans. And I'm reading from Daniel and Revelation, a book by Uriah Smith, which really helps you understand the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a great book I recommend. It's, it's explaining about the Nicolaitans, their deeds, what it means. It says, concerning their doctrines and practices, they seemed, uh, there seems to be a general agreement that they held to a community of wives. What's that called? Polygamy, right? Regarded adultery and fornication as things indifferent and permitted the eating of things offered to idols. Now, obviously, that's not us, right? Uh, SDA church, no polygamy, no fornication, no adultery. We're good. We keep the law of God, right? But let's do a self-introspection and look into this doctrine and what it teaches. Because Jesus hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And we must be careful to understand, okay, what are the deeds of the Nicolaitans and how can we avoid them? Because if you don't know what the deeds of the Nicolaitans are, chances are perhaps maybe you could be doing them unknowingly. Polygamy. And you know, as I was reviewing this sermon with my brother, he mentioned something on polygamy that was quite interesting, right? Polygamy is this idea of having many wives. And in a spiritual sense, what is polygamy? Having allegiance to many gods, right? Worshipping different things, including God. Could we, could we be doing that today? But this point makes it clear. Sorry for that slide. That's just how it did itself. But uh, it says... The doctrine is now largely taught that the gospel of Christ has met the law of God of what? No effect. Does that sound familiar? That by believing, we are released from the necessity of being doers of the word. But this, but this is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which Christ so unsparingly condemned. So what's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? This doctrine that because we are under grace, we are not obliged to keep the law. Almost 80% of the churches today teach that we are under what? Under grace. The law doesn't matter. You don't have to keep the Sabbath. Those are extremists. The ones who keep the Sabbath, they're just too much. Mm -hmm. Once saved, always saved. That's not true. 
you can be saved and lost again. And also in reverse. But friends, let's, let's be aware of this doctrine and oppose this doctrine. Because if we don't oppose it like Jesus did, we may be embracing this doctrine. And so Jude, one, uh, Jude speaks of the amazing disgrace that was going on during those times. He says, contend for the faith which was once delivered unto you, right? And then he says why you have to do that. Because there are some men who have done what? Crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. What's lasciviousness? That's King James language, but uh, it really means base passion, indulgence, sexual impurity, immorality. In a sense, this doctrine of Nicolaitans is or means using the grace of God as a license to sin. I know God is gracious. I'm going to do this sin. I'm going to sin, and then I'll ask for forgiveness. Do you do that sometimes? If you do that, raise your hand. <laughs> I have done that I, I, many times. And when I read this, I realized, hey, James, that's the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and you cannot hold that doctrine because Jesus hates it. So you have to stop it. We can't say, uh, because we, we, we are under grace, somehow God is going to understand there's some other languages God doesn't understand, like the language of the Nicolaitans. He doesn't understand. He hates it. And so as we do some self-introspection, are you a Nicolaitan? Just ask yourself that question and look into your life, how you lead your life. Do you truly understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin? Do you understand what sin did to Jesus Christ and why he hates this doctrine of saying, hey, Jesus died, Everybody is free now. You can do whatever you want. No, that's not the case. Jesus hates it because his death means sin is so, it's so bad that we have to avoid it. It killed the Son of God. And honestly, I wish I had this deep hatred for sin, but I don't really have it. And I pray that God will instill that hatred for sin in me to truly understand what happened on the cross and why Jesus had to die because Adam and Eve ate a fruit. Is that really why? Is, is, that, is it as easy as that? They just ate a fruit? Or is it some deeper, some deeper thing that was going in, in Adam and Eve's mind when they ate the fruit? The rebellion and the... Lord, help us to understand this. But Jesus promises that if we overcome, we are going to do what? We are going to be saved. He's going to give us of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So there's always a crown. There's always a promise that God gives to those who are faithful if we overcome. It's conditional. If we overcome. So that's the first thing Jesus has against you and me. We have left our first love, and we did some introspection into that. But also, the other thing he has against us is that we may be holding or doing the deeds of the Nicolaitans turning the grace of God into nothingness, into lasciviousness, taking it as a license to sin. So let's move on to the church of Smyrna, and we're going to be quick here. It's really the church that expanded from the early hundreds to the early 300s. The church of Smyrna. Smyrna means a sweet smell. 
Until the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and alive. Amen. Jesus Christ is the what? The Alpha and what? Omega. The beginning and the end. He's everything. The entire alphabet of life. He's everything. He was dead and he's alive. Why would he mention that he was dead? Did Jesus once upon a time decide, I think I should just die and resurrect? What happened really? He died for us. For you and me. And so it reveals the character of God that God is what? God is love. Greater love has no man than this, that he should what? Lay down his life for his friends. And so it reveals God's character. And that's what I love about the book of Revelation. It's not about beasts. It's about God's character. I know thy works. This church went through severe persecution. There was tribulation. Poverty, they were deprived of the things they had. And, and their people, Jesus says, you know of the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are really the synagogue of Satan. And, and Jews really means those who claim to be the heirs of who? Abraham, right? And we know that Jews doesn't mean Jew in a literal sense. Jew simply means those who claim to be Christians but are not. Because if we are in Christ, what are we? We are Abraham's seed if we are in Christ. So we are spiritually, in a spiritual sense, we are what? Jews. But there are those who are claiming to be Christians and they were not Christians. And Jesus hates this idea of having this pretense that you are Christian but you're not. But he counsels this church, the persecuted church, to fear none of those things which they were going to suffer. And, and God is very particular. He tells them what's going to happen to them. The devil is going to cast some of you into prison that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation how many days? Ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. You know, when you study this, you find out that there was a worst persecution that happened uh, during a span of ten years, from 303 AD to 313. The church of God was persecuted under Emperor Diocletian. He wanted to obliterate Christianity, to kill all Christians. So Jesus was speaking about this time. Interesting, there's no complaint towards this church. Isn't it interesting that when persecution comes, the church becomes, becomes pure? Because you know who is the real one, right? And so there's no complaint in this, in this church. I don't think we'll, we'll spend much time here because we're looking for the complaints, remember? But there's a crown. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Spirit is saying something to the churches, and it requires a spiritual ear to hear these things. He that overcomes, again, the word overcome is used. He that overcomes, he will not be hurt by the second death. Moving on to the church of Pergamum. Pergamum means elevation. Between 323 A.D. to 538 A.D., and it says, unto the church in Pergamos, write, These things saith he which has sharp sword with two edges. Now that sounds a bit complex. What does that mean? But praise God for the, for the Bible and for the word because we know what a, a two-edged sword means. When you read Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is what? Quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. The word of God has penetrating power. It reveals 
your thoughts and your heart, everything in your mind. You know, when you read the Bible, you truly understand who you truly are because you know that there's nothing good in you. The heart of man is desperately wicked. And without Jesus, we are going to be desperately wicked above all things. The word of God is powerful. And this reveals something about God that I learned, and I want to, I want to share this with you, that um, God works with his word. In creation, he works with his word, even in redemption. You know, Psalms 33 verse 9, it says that, By the word of the Lord were the heavens met, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood fast. So God uses his word to do whatever he does. And so we can't throw the Bible away and say, I'm going to follow the spirit. It has to be through the word of God. And Jesus is portrayed as one who has the two-edged sword, which is the word of God. He is the word. So Jesus works through his word. Even much more interestingly, though, Jesus, who is the word, when he came upon this earth, did not substitute the word. Remember when he was tempted, what did he say? It is what? He could have said, uh, I said, or I have said, but he said it is written. He submitted to the written word. So why are we not willing to do that today? Why do we think we have a superior experience about the Bible? And, you know, I'm preaching to you, but we all know what happens in the, in the other churches outside, that they say the Bible really is not what it says. We need to uh, interpret it in a different way. It needs apostolic tradition to explain what the Bible teaches. Is that true? No. God works with his word. I won't spend much time. But this reveals that God is truth. God is truth. God cannot lie. We are told in Titus, the one who promised cannot lie. But, but when you go to, I, I, I will spend a little bit of time here. So go to the book of Numbers. Go to the book of Numbers chapter 23. And um, in the book of Numbers 23, we have an interesting story there. So just in short, we have Balaam, who was a prophet of God, but who had gone, uh, who had started to do things that were not good. And then we have Balak. So Balak told Balaam to curse who? Curse Israel. Did he do it? He tried, but it didn't work. And when you read verse 19, it says, well, let me start from verse 18. And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall, shall he not make it good? So God cannot lie. God cannot repent. When he says something, it's sealed. The word of God lasts forever. God is truth. Malachi 3.6. I, I am God, and I cannot change. Therefore, Jacob is not consumed. God is truth. And God is not relative. Truth is not relative. God is truth. I know thy works, and I know you dwell where Satan's seat is. He says you are dwelling in a place where the devil resides. Do you dwell in a place where the devil resides? Are we dwelling in a place where the devil resides today? When you look around, do you see the devil's works happening? Yes! The devil is working at a much 
faster spa- uh, 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 rate than he was working in those days. So this applies to us. The devil is literally working on this planet right now, causing natural disasters and all these things, wars and rumors of wars. And, and Jesus says, even, those, uh, even in those, oh, it says, but you have hold fast to my name and you have not denied the faith. Faith comes by what? Hearing what? The word of God. They were faithful to the word of God and they did not want to compromise the word of God. Are we willing to be faithful to the word or are we compromising the word of God? But I have a few things against thee. Because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. What is this doctrine of Balaam? And Jesus brings up the Nicolaitan issue again. He says, so has also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And this is very interesting, right? Why is Jesus so, so big about doctrines, right? Do doctrines matter? You know, in, in the world today we live in, we're moving towards an ecumenical world where, where everybody wants to join together under one and say, it doesn't matter what you believe in, right? Let's, let's just unite um, under love, Right? And forget about the doctrines. But when you read the book of Revelation, it says otherwise, that Jesus has a special hatred for specific doctrines. Is it our job to know these doctrines? To avoid ourselves from entertaining them or joining those who hold these doctrines? In fact, notice, he doesn't say you are teaching these doctrines, but he says you have some among you that teach these things. This requires a special introspection to look into our lives and Look at these things. Now, we've talked about Nicolaitan doctrine, but let's look at the doctrine of Balaam. What is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, we saw that he desired to curse God's people, but it didn't work. And so he tried another way. What did he, what did he do? What did, what did Balaam do? He tried to curse them, but he couldn't. What did he do? Well, he tried to make them participate in the celebration of the rites of idolatry and its licentious moab to participate in the celebration of idolatry and its licentious accomplishments. The plan succeeded. So Balaam trapped God's people. Well, he tried to curse, but it didn't work, so what did he do? He made them join the world, literally. Join their amusements. And all the women and everything that was going on in, in tra- trapped the minds of the children of Israel and they sinned. And when you read there, it says that the curse of God was called down upon them uh, by their sins and 24,000 people died. This is grave. This is a grave sin. This is a grave doctrine that we have to avoid and know and identify and understand and avoid. The doctrines complained of the church in Pergamos were of the course similar in their tendency, leading to spiritual idolatry and an unlawful connection between the church and what? And the world. Out of this spirit was finally produced the union of civil and ecclesiastical powers which culminated in the formation of the papacy. Wow. So this doctrine of Balaam is the doctrine that teaches that you can be in the word and in the world at the same time, and there's no problem. Jesus hates that, 
Jesus cannot allow that to happen. We as a church, we cannot connect with the world as though we are business partners, as though we have the same aims in mind, because we don't. The world is going into uh, perdition, it says, condemnation, and we, by God's grace, want to be saved. So we cannot unite. And so here's a moment of truth and self-reflection. In our church today, have we, in, in, in a sense, connected in the world, the customs of the world, how they worship? Are we adopting those customs into our world? How they, they think, how they dress, how they eat, the things they watch, the things they do. If, if you were to, to be put there and a worldly person put there, could, could you tell the difference? Moment of self-reflection. Jesus says, repent or else I will come and fight you. Jesus is going to fight us with his word. His word is going to condemn us. And that's the thing about the double-edged sword. What does it mean to be double-edged? It has two sides. It can kill. Well, let's start with the good side. It can save, but it can also kill. To the repentant sinner, the word of God is good. Thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy words was the joy and rejoicing of my heart. But what if you don't want to listen? It destroys you. It condemns you. So we need to repent. And if we overcome, again, the word is used, overcome. There's a, there's a battle that needs to be done, a fighting that needs to be, to be accomplished. We need to fight the good fight. Moving on to the church of Thyatira. Now, the church of Thyatira is the church that was dominated by the Roman Catholic Church. <clears throat> At this time, uh, the papacy ruled the world. They literally ruled the world. They were the boss of the world, and whatever they said was truth. If you thought or spoke something against Roman Catholicism, what happened to you? You were killed, persecuted. You were, you were viewed as a heretic. And you know, I was, I was, just bear with me here, because there's so much truth that we need to, to understand, especially with the Church of Thyatira, something that really blew my mind. I was like, what? The Church of Thyatira from mid-500s to 1798. At this time, we've, we see this Antichrist power ruling. Now remember, the book of Revelation speaks of things that were and that will come after. So we're still looking on to an, uh, an Antichrist power as well, but even then it was already working. Here's a quote by Pope Pius uh, X means 10, right? The 10th. The Pope represents Jesus Christ himself. Does that sound scriptural to you? Is that from the Bible? Is that from the... Which version is that? This is a false doctrine. And this, 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 this is not just a quote. It represents the state of things in those days. Literally, the Pope was Jesus Christ on earth. And so no wonder when Jesus represents himself, he says, And until the end of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God. He says, the Pope is not the son of God. No, I am the true son of God. I am the way, the truth, and what? And the life. Who has his eyes like unto a flame of fire? And his feet are like fine brass. The eyes of fire representing his judgment. Jesus Christ is also the judge, remember? He's our savior, but he's also what? The judge. Because all judgment has been, uh, has been given to the son, he says. And so we learn that only Jesus Christ is worthy. 
If you read the book of Revelation chapter 5, who else can open the seal? Jesus, only Jesus can, not even an angel. And so even though in our world, even today, we still have people who teach that there's some other way to Jesus, there's only one way. Even though we have people who teach that for you to come to Jesus, you have to go through uh, a priest or a pope or even a president, Jesus is the only one who is worthy. And we need to understand that. I know your works. And it speaks of those who were last, but they were, they were actually more than the first. And we won't spend much time here. Moving on, let's look at the complaint that Jesus Christ gives to the church of Thyatira. He says, notwithstanding, I have how many things against you? Just a few things against you. Because you suffer who? That woman Jezebel to do what? Come on, are you still with me? <laughs> Thou suffers that woman Jezebel to do what? To teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. This woman Jezebel calls herself what? Prophetess. And what does Jezebel mean? Let's, let's be real quick here as we move, move to, towards the close of this message. Jezebel is a figurative name alluding to Ahab's wife, who slew the prophets of the Lord, led her husband to idolatry. And what else did he do? He fed the prophets of Baal at her table. And really, when you think about it, this is, there's no more striking figure to represent what the Roman Catholic Church was doing at that time. What did it do? Did the Roman Catholic Church persecute and slew the prophets of the Lord? It did. This is history. And uh, by the way, this is no attack. This is just... Pure history and pure Bible study. And did the Roman Catholic Church lead many into idolatry? Yes. They introduced this idea of worshiping literal images of Mary and Jesus and the apostles, the saints. And they, they took all the pagan symbols and rituals and they baptized them into Christianity. They did that. And we need to understand the history because it might be repeated if it's not repeating right now. And they also did what? Fed the prophets of Baal. The problem Jesus has is that they allowed this woman to teach. They allowed to be plain Roman Catholicism to teach. And, and, and the question is asked to us, are we allowing that to happen today? Are we allowing the Roman Catholic power to teach? Because, and Jesus doesn't hate the Roman Catholic power per se. He hates the doctrines, the deeds, because they, they just cannot, they're against who Jesus is and what he does, and so that's why Jesus has a problem with that. And so do we allow the doctrines from Rome to somehow slip into our, our Bible studies and our, the, our preachings? You know, when you go on YouTube and all that, what, what kind of sermons do you watch? From where are they, what doctrines do they have? What understanding of Bible do they represent to you? Because without knowing, we may be receiving doctrines like this one, the doctrine of Jezebel. I won't spend much time here. And really what I'm doing here is just to arouse an interest in the book of Revelation. You can go and study these things in detail. But God is gracious. Jesus Christ is gracious. He gave her time to repent. What do you say? Amen. Amen. So Jesus doesn't want to just throw Jezebel away. He gave her time to repent. And that's something I understood about prophecy. Why do you have all these long time periods? 1,260 days or years. 
It's because God is gracious. He gives whatever kingdom time to repent. And when they say no, he removes them and puts another. And so Rome was given time to repent, but Rome doesn't seem to change. They have never changed publicly. They have never changed their doctrines or their teachings, which is really the problem. Behold, Jesus says what he's going to do. Let's just move on real quick. Jesus says he's going to kill her. He says, I will kill your children. Obviously, this is spiritually speaking to the time of the second judgment. Not the second judgment, but the actual judgment when God is going to punish the beast. You can find that in the book of Daniel chapter 7. The beast is going to be slain because God, Jesus Christ, is actually the judge. He's a counsel. But unto you, I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as has, has, does not have this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, wow, the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. I want to mention something that I forgot to mention about doctrine. Why is Jesus so big about doctrines? It's because what you believe dictates what you do and who you are and who you become. Let's think about it. The recent sad, devastating news of the 215 remains of the children at, at Kamloops Residential School. I, I was watching the video, and, uh, the video that uh, a chief, chief of the Dana Nation did, and in it he says, it all, it's all because of the doctrine of discovery. I was like, okay, what's this doctrine of discovery? And I went on Google and searched about this doctrine of discovery, and I was amazed, I was shocked. Because the doctrine of discovery taught that as long as you're Christian, if you go to another nation, you are free to remove them. Because Christianity is, in a sense, the highest authority in the land, and uh, it's by, the, uh, and I'm quoting here, divine design. There's no divine design. These are doctrines of devils that we have to dissociate ourselves from. And interestingly, the doctrine of discovery originated from where? From Rome. It was, it was calculated by the Catholic Church. And so no wonder the Bible is usually fighting these doctrines. And again, not fighting against a person, but fighting against an ideology and a thinking. Because the great controversy is about what you think. It's about the mind. It's a battle for the mind. Think of Hitler, right? The things he did, the horrible things he did. It was all driven by what? What he believed. The doctrines he had in his mind that somehow one race is higher than the other and the other one, and, and he, could, he could look to evolutionary science and say, it makes sense here. So we have to be careful what we believe in. Jesus knows that. What is the doctrine of Jezebel? I got this from Amazing Discoveries. Very interesting. It says, the twin pillars of Roman Catholicism are faith in the Eucharistic mystery. What's that? It's this idea that, you know, they have the power to bring the body of Jesus Christ literally into their masses and into the uh, supper and all the Holy Communion. But that's not from the Bible. Because Jesus was delivered how many times? Once and for all. And they're also teaching the intercessory role of Mary. These are not from the these are not biblical doctrines. So we have to avoid these doctrines in our lives and you know just lead those who are in the darkness. We have been called as the Seventh-day Adventist Church to tell the truth. And this is not me making anything up, by the way. This is just pure Bible study from the Word of God. This is, by the way, the revelation of who? Jesus Christ. He's revealing these things to us, and we need to take heed. He that overcomes, Jesus promises the amazing blessings he's going to give you. If you do what? 
overcome. Overcome what in this sense? Overcome all these evil doctrines. And make sure that you're not easily taken by any what? Any wind of doctrine. And so, Revelation 3.6 says, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is a spiritual thing. It needs spiritual ears, really. Because we can't really understand these things without God. So we are, we're getting closer to the end. Don't be worried. I won't keep you long. The Church of Saldis. The Church of Saldis is a, is a church from 1798 when uh, the, the papal power was, in a sense, stopped until 1843. And as we look here, I want as well to put on your, uh, your, your, the spirit of reflection and self-examination as we look into the Church of Saldis. And as always, Jesus begins with a confirmation and comfort and telling us who he is and the power, the ability he has to support us in this world. He says, unto the church, to the angel of the church of Sardis, right? These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God, that the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, when I was thinking this, reading this rather, I remembered Psalms chapter 139 which says, where can I go from who? From, from your presence, from your Holy Spirit. If I go in heaven, you are there. If I go to hell, you are there. God is what? Omni-what? Omnipresent. But not only is God omnipresent, he's also what? Omniscient. He knows all things, and he is everywhere. You can't hide anything from God. Before him, all things are what? Naked, says the book of Hebrews. God sees everything. That's the character of God right there. And so he says, I know. I know your works. And I know you have a name that you leave, but actually you are what? <laughs> Dead. You, you, you can tell your friends that you're Christian, right? But I know. You can tell, uh, you know, you can go to church and preach and do these wonderful things, but I know that you only have a name only, but you are dead. Moment of truth and self-reflection. Do we, are, we, are we nominal Christians today? I feel like I am. I don't know about you. You just have a name, but in reality, you are dead. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will impress upon our minds to realize our true condition and change. Jesus says with his graceful voice, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. Do you feel like there's something in your life that's ready to die? Like it's just almost, almost gone. And Jesus says, I've not found your works perfect before God. Now, we could go into the historic application of that, but I feel like the present-day application is much more real and much more, much more important. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. Go back to the word and hold fast and repent. Jesus says, I'll come as a thief. This speaks to the time when the, the, the everlasting gospel of the second coming was being preached unto all the world. And there was this great disappointment. We won't get into that. Let's just focus on what it means today to us. Are we willing to repent and go back and do the right things? Compliment. Oh, wait. Compliment comes after complaints here. Something changed. And I'll leave, I'll, I'll leave this up to you for you to go ahead and study and find out why. But it says that there, there's just a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. Christianity at this point was... Only few were faith, but just few. And it's so good that Jesus still recognizes them. Do you know that if you are the only true Christian on this planet, Jesus will still continue to care for you? 
because Jesus is not about numbers. Everything he does for you, he does as though you were the only one present on this world. That's how deeply he cares about you. And I love that about Jesus. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white. And I will not blot his name out of the book of life. But what do we have to do? What do we have to do? Overcome. What do we have to do? Overcome. Praise God. So we have to overcome for us to, to be able to receive this white remnant. Moving on. He that hath an ear, let him hear the, what the Spirit says to the churches. But let's move on to the uh, second to last church, and then we'll be finished. The church of Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Philadelphia. 1844 to 1888. That's right. And unto the end of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that has the key of David, he that opens and no man shuts and shuts and no man opens. We learn a few things about God that when God opens, no one what? Can close. And when he shuts, no one can what? Because God is the, I love the quote that says if God's, I wish it was, a, it was a Bible verse, but it's not. If God says yes, who can say no, right? But God is holy and God is true. And it also shows that God, not, not only does God open and does not uh, open and no one can shut and shut and no one can open, but it just shows us the plain truth that God can open and at some time he can just close. And if you study this refers to the time during 1844, really, we all know what happened. When Jesus moved from where to where? He moved from the holy to the most holy. And so the door to the most holy place was opened. But it also refers to the spiritual enlightenment that was opened at that time. And, and we learned about the Sabbath. Remember there was a church that Jesus says, I will not put any other burden upon you? So th there's so many things that Jesus doesn't reveal at once. And it shows me how Jesus works with us. He says with the disciples, I have so many things to, to, to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. So Jesus does not overwhelm you with the truth either. He just gives you enough that you need, daily bread that you need for the day. Uh, Jesus says, you have, you have little strength. Indeed, these people had little strength. But you have kept my word and you have not denied, denied my name. Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Interesting that Jesus brings up the... the um, the idea of the synagogue of Satan. So the synagogue of Satan is not a thing of the past. Even today, we still have this issue of the synagogue of Satan. And Jesus promises them that he's going to keep them from the hour of temptation. But here's the counsel. Here's the counsel to the church. Uh, Jesus Christ says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, no man uh, lest any man take your crown. And again, he that overcomes. The idea is we have to overcome. But friends, as we are passing through this and we're getting close to the end, are we really listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying? And I find this to be a challenge because it requires spiritual ears to hear this. No wonder Jesus says, said, he that hath an ear. Okay, 2021, the church of Laodicea from 1888 until the day that Jesus Christ will come again. 
We're going to stay here for, a long, for the longest time, and so, although we'll spend a little time here. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, right? These things say the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. There's comfort. Jesus Christ is faithful. Great is thy faithfulness. It's because of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. If you think about it, looking at the Laodicean church, it shouldn't exist, right? Because it's so broken. But it's because of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So Jesus says, you're not cold or hot. It would be better if you were cold or hot. That way I would know what to do with you. But lukewarmness is a little bit confusing for me. How do you know you're lukewarm, by the way? How do you know you're a lukewarm Christian? It's very hard because you never know. You think you're good. So this is a challenge, and we need to, to pray for a spiritual understanding because this is present-day application, 2021, the last church in the, in the seven churches. So who is a hot Christian? Who wants to be a hot Christian? Say amen. Amen. I want to be a hot Christian. A hot Christian will be one that is on fire for Christ, committed, earnest, studious, dedicated, in love with Christ, and motivated to share and witness his or her faith. Are you doing these things in your life? Are you on fire for Jesus? Uh, when you look in your past experience, do you think you are growing? That's a hot Christian. And then we have a cold Christian. A cold Christian is one that knows his or her condition. They are far from Christ, and they sense their need of salvation. They realize that they're in a lost condition. Interesting, if you are hot or cold, you know what's going on, right? But when you look them, you never know. So the better state is this. The hot and the cold Christian feel their state. They feel what's going on. This makes them perfect candidates for Christ's salvation and, and just where Christ would want them to be. For there's a sense of unfitness, a groping and seeking after something better. What a man feels he lacks and wants, he will earnestly strive to obtain. So it's better to be hot or cold. Because if you're cold, you realize, oh, I'm in this mess again. I need to get to Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with that. But you, you still have to realize you're in the cold and you, you come to Jesus Christ. Praise God. And when you are hot, you still realize you, you need Jesus every time. You still need him. Otherwise, you're going to go back to the coldness. But to be a, a, a lukewarm Christian is a dangerous thing. A lukewarm Christian, on the other hand, does not realize his or her condition. There's a state of insensibility and indifference, a supreme satisfaction. They feel they need nothing. There's a danger of a lukewarm person staying there. Do you feel like you need nothing? Do you feel like you have everything together? Like everything is good right now. I am holy. I'm good. You may be in a lukewarm, uh, lukewarm condition. And by God's grace, I hope that God will show us our true condition. Because if we are in a lukewarm condition, we won't even know. So let's strive to be a what type of Christian? Hard Christian, praise God. 
So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will what? Spew thee out of, the, out of my mouth. I mean, this applies to every church. If you are not willing to be made willing, what's going to happen? God will dissociate himself from you. Because thou sayest that I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. And this, this saddens me because these people are not hypocrites either. They just don't know. Because they put themselves in this supreme satisfaction. And you can't know that you look well. Only God can reveal that to us. That's our spiritual condition. And I'm trying to make a verse in the Bible my favorite verse. It's hard, but I'm trying. It's found in Isaiah chapter 1. It speaks of the condition of man. It says, from the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But it's full of wounds and bruises and putrefying souls. The whole head is sick, it says. That's our true condition. And whenever you always feel that way or see a, a, a danger of being in that way, that means you're in a good place. But if you ever reach a point where you feel like you are good enough, that you have attained to a state of holiness or, or righteousness, you might be lukewarm. There's a counsel for us to buy. I won't spend much time with this. I know we've heard a sermon on this topic like a hundred times, right? So I won't go into the details, but I just want to focus on the word buy. Jesus says you have to buy. I counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire that you may be rich and white raiment that you may clothe your nakedness and anoint your eyes off that you may see. But what does it mean to buy? As we conclude, let's go to the book of Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, one of my favorite chapters, I must say. In the book of Isaiah 55, it says, it says, ho, maybe let me wait for people to get there. If you can turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 55 as we conclude. Amen. It says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How is it possible to buy without money and without price? Someone answer me if you can, because this is interesting. How do you, it's strange, really. How do you buy without money and without price? You still have to buy. So what do you have to do? You have to surrender. Praise God. Surrender. And let's face it, this is the hardest thing to do in the Christian experience. To surrender. To give up all. To say, I never understand how Jesus did it, but he says, I don't do anything on my own. I do everything to please the Father. Can we say that today? I find that Really interesting. And so the, the bind that we have to do in the book of Revelation is surrender. We have to give up all. We have to just be made willing to be made willing. That's all. We have to be malleable and just be willing. Accept our true condition. And when we reach this level, when we have this amount of surrender, God is going to do great things in us. And we're going to have that gold of fire. And we're going to be rich. You know, 
I won't go into the actual uh, verses that support this, but the gold tried in the fire really means faith and love. And when you, when you think about faith, we, we've always had faith, right? But perhaps he's speaking about the faith that Jesus had himself. Do we have that today? The love that Jesus had, do we have that today? What does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Now abides faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these, of these things is what? Love. These are the three graces or elements that we have to possess for us to be. James speak of those who are, uh, God has chosen the poor of the world, rich in faith. And so to be rich means to be rich in what? In faith. You know, Abraham is represented as one of those who, 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 who had the inheritance. So God promised that he's, he's going to be the heir of God's everything, right? God's possession. And when we think about how Abraham got that access to the things of God, it was through what? Through faith, praise God. Abraham believed and it was counted what? Righteousness. So we have to have the faith of Jesus Christ to take God at his word. Whatever he says, we just believe it because God said it. And there's a character of God here as well in the book of Revelation 3 as we conclude. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know, when I read Isaiah chapter 1, I was like, why is God just speaking bad things about me? But that's not the point, though. Because in Isaiah 1.18, he says, come now, let us reason together. So God, God, the Bible is not to condemn anyone. It just points out our need so that we can come to God. And that's the beautiful thing about Jesus. As many as he loves, he rebukes and chasten. Behold, this is the final calling to this church and to you and me. I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, will sup with him, and he with me. I was having a conversation with my friend yesterday, and uh, she was asking, what does it mean to hear the voice of God? Because sometimes you have so many voices in your head. How do you know what's the voice of Jesus Christ? Remember the story of Eli and Samuel when he was first called? Samuel thought, who was calling? He thought Eli was calling him, but who was actually calling? God. And so from that I learned that, you know, the voice of God could be, maybe it just sounds as familiar. The voice of God could be your brother speaking to you or your friend speaking to you. The voice of God. Are we willing to hear the voice of God? Because that's the true, that's the whole crux of the matter. Are you willing to listen and to obey? If you be willing and obedient, it says in Isaiah 1.18, I think the following verse, you shall eat the good of the land. If we allow Jesus to come in our hearts, we are going to overcome because he's going to give us the victory. Listen to what it says here. I will grant unto him to sit in my throne, even I also overcame. We overcome as he overcame. As we're going through all the churches, it said you have to do what? Overcome. And Jesus tells us here that you overcome as I overcame. And so you have to allow me to be in your heart or else you won't even overcome. Friends, are we willing? And I know we all have given our lives to Jesus, but in a special sense, are we willing to listen to the Holy Spirit? It's one thing to accept Jesus and say, I love Jesus, 
But do you listen to the Holy Spirit when he speaks to you? When he tells you, you have to do this or not do that, do you really listen? I find that to be the most challenging thing in my life even. You know, sometimes the Holy Spirit tells me, hey, James, it's, uh, it's, it's getting late, you need to sleep. And uh, I just ignore that. Or he says, hey, James, um, you need to witness to that person. I say, nah, it's not going to happen. Say, hey, James, you need to do this. And I say, no, 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 no. Are we willing to listen to what the Holy Spirit says? He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you have an ear? Obviously, we all do, right? But this is a spiritual ear. The disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak to us in parables? And he says, it has been given to you to hear these things, but not unto them. Because they don't want to listen. They have closed their ears less than any time they, they may hear and see and be converted. That's what Jesus says. And so are you willing to be converted? Willing to be made willing? Friends, if you are willing to be made willing right now, I just want, if you can, by a show of hands, to just say, Lord, you have told me many things that you have against me. And I'm going to go back home and, and study these things once again and review them. And, and you, have, you have tested me and tried me, and I have been found wanting. But now I want to be made willing. I know I can't on my own, but I want to be made willing. If that's your prayer, I'll raise my hand just to, you know, to just show that I am willing, Lord, use me. And if you want to as well, raise your hand. And God sees your heart. He's omniscient, omnipresent. So as we are willing, I'm going to pray and uh, pray that God will come into our lives and lead us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Indeed, your word is sweet. When you read your word, we know of your character. We know of your love and of your grace. And so, Lord, we've studied the book. We've studied the seven churches, particularly the last church. And we find that we are lukewarm. And uh, in my own experience and the experience of others as well, we see that we are not worthy, that uh, many times we backslide into sin and sometimes we are not willing to just listen to you because it's not convenient to do so. Lord, you see the hands raised, those who are in church right now or even those who are watching from home. Lord, we are willing to be made willing right now. We want to listen to your Holy Spirit we want to receive the latter rain and have that Pentecost experience once again. And, and to be like Jesus in every sense of the word. To overcome as he overcame. So Lord, in a special way, I show you those who are struggling with uh, specific particular types of sins. Lord, I pray that you give us victory. Give them victory over any temptation, any sin. Because you have promised that we will overcome as you overcame as long as we are willing to open the door, as long as we are willing to just listen. So Lord, I pray that you give us that spiritual ear which we lack. Uh, give us the knowledge that we need, the wisdom that we lack. Forgive us of our every sin and give us your righteousness. And Lord, just keep us from falling. So to the only wise and true God, the only God who is able to keep us from falling, to you we ask that you may keep us and be able to present us faultless, without anything against us that you have before your Father when you return again. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen.